Well, I appreciate our worship team, don't you? The people that week after week, they prepare, they come, uh, they come early on Sunday mornings and they lead us into the presence of God. And uh, mm. so I'm still battling this cough thing and, and my plan was to not sing this morning and uh, that plan did not work. And so I'm hoarse as ever. Uh, so excuse me as I bark my way through this message. Maybe uh, God will give us grace and we will hear from him and not so much from me. That would be wonderful. So uh, pray with me. Father, as we uh, come together in this room, we want to we express gratitude and thanksgiving to you. Uh, one, Lord, that we have the freedom to uh, meet and, and to worship you and to praise you. And we can do that really unhindered, Father. From without, and uh, and Father, we uh, as always ask you to speak to us and teach us as we begin a new series this morning. And uh, some of us need encouragement. Some of us uh, probably need conviction. And wherever we are across the map, the landscape of of experience and and um, and just even uh, uh, emotionally where we might be. Uh, spiritually where we might be. Father, you are the God who can meet us there, and you are the God who can rescue us, and you are the God who can affirm us and move us in the direction of becoming more like Jesus. Please, Father, would you do that this morning? We ask in his name. Amen? Well, this morning we begin a new series, and the series is on worship. And you might wonder, well, why would you study the thing of worship? Well, um, we're going to find out as we study that this is a this is a, a topic that is of paramount importance. You know, a lot of times when we think of worship, we think of things like choirs singing and swaying or pipe organs puffing or worship bands wailing or preachers dressed in robes or preachers dressed in jeans, uh, pastors and people praying and preaching sermons and the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism and things of that nature. All of those things are things that happen in worship, but they don't necessarily define worship. You need to know that some people, when they hear the word worship, they actually think more about feelings or experiences or emotions or an atmosphere that is set. And while those things are certainly a part of worship, they're not really what constitute worship. Have you ever heard somebody say, oh man, worship was was really powerful today? Maybe you've said that. Or have you ever heard somebody say, yeah, worship was just kind of flat today? Well, what does that mean when we say those kinds of things? What does that say about us? What does that say about our worship? Uh, Is worship, good worship, contemporary, or is it traditional? Is good worship choruses, or is it hymns? Is good worship informal, or is it liturgical? Uh, Does it matter if pastors are in robes or pastors are in jeans? What is good worship? In this series, I want us to, as a church, think about some of the things that we do in our worship service and know why we do them. Next week, for example, um, we're, we'll be doing communion. Normally, we would be doing communion this morning. Some of you are probably expecting it. And you don't see the Lord's table up here, and you're wondering, well, what's going on? Well, we've postponed uh, the Lord's table till next Sunday. And when we gather next Sunday, we're going to actually kind of march our way through the things that we do in a worship service and talk about why we do them and talk about the importance of them and things of that nature. So be sure and be with us uh, next Sunday. And again, we will partake of worship uh, together. Um, I also want us in this um, in this series to see the connectedness of Old Testament worship, the way the saints worshiped under the Old Covenant. Um, 
and how that is similar to and perhaps even a little different than New Testament worship. I want us in the end of this series to have a kind of a good sense of what worship really is. <coughs> Excuse me. This morning is uh, an, inter- <clears throat> an introductory message for this series. And uh, I want to kind of lay the groundwork of how important and how central this subject of worship is for anyone wanting to follow Jesus. And as I stated, uh, as I started to prepare for this series and reflect and do some reading, I was fascinated to discover that worship is not just a subtext of Scripture. Uh, It is actually the central text of Scripture, the primary uh, topic of Scripture. In fact, you could say that the whole movement of the story of God interacting with people, starting with uh, Adam and Eve and Noah to Abraham to Moses to, to the creation of the nation of Israel and right into the New Testament, it's all about God being worshipped and trying to help people worship the one right thing, the only thing that they were really made to worship. A lot of times we will kind of think that, well, God must be needy. I mean, he needs all this worship, right? He needs all this attention. It's actually quite the opposite. God doesn't need anybody's worship. The fact of the matter is we are creatures created in his image. We are creatures created to love him and have relationship with him. And when we worship, we are then capable of being who we're really meant to be. It's out of love for us that God calls us into this place of worship. Um, I've got to tell you, as I was surveying scripture, I was kind of amazed to see worship everywhere. Right from the start, the moment God created anything, worship started flowing ceaselessly in his direction. Um, His creation, animate and inanimate objects uh, or creatures have always taken part in an unending chorus of praise and worship to God. Consider, for example, Nehemiah 9. We read this. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens and even the highest heavens and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. The, uh, in Isaiah chapter 6, we read this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphs. So here we get kind of a subspecies uh, of the uh, angels. Not all the angels were seraphs, but these are seraphs. And they're described this way, each with six wings. And I said in the first service, I don't know if there were ten wingers and nine wingers and eight wingers. And maybe the more powerful you were, the more wings you had. And then you get down to just the two wingers or maybe some that didn't have their wings. We don't really know any of that but these are six wingers these are powerful beasts they're described this way or powerful creatures Uh, it says with two wings they covered their faces with two they covered their feet and with two they were flying i mean these would be magnificent creatures to behold and they were calling to one another and notice what they called holy 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 is the lord god almighty the whole earth is full of his glory and it's interesting when we read things like that sometimes we think well you know god made these creatures and he makes them do this all day every day all day long you know 24 7 Woof, boring understand that's not what's going on here at all These creatures are so taken up with the goodness and the greatness and the majesty of this God who has made them that this is what they are compelled personally to do, to give God praise. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, holy, 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 you see. 
They can't help but worship. Verses like these and, and many others teach us that long before the creation of the earth and even before the creation of human beings and so, there were other angelic creatures that have been worshiping God for we really don't know how long, but for a long time. It's just what they want to do. It's what they're compelled to do in the presence of this magnificent God. Uh, in fact, it would seem <coughs> that worship was a primary activity of the hosts of heaven for all of eternity past, depending on whenever God created them. I found it interesting to learn that the uh, moment God made the heavens and the earth inanimate objects, they started giving him worship of a kind. We read in Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. You can't stop them. Whether you believe in a God or not, you cannot stop the heavens from declaring the glory of God. It's as though the moment these things are created, they start reflecting the fact that, that God really is great. God really is big. God really loves beauty. God is a magnificent maker of beautiful things. He's amazingly glorious and incredibly wise. And it's just displayed everywhere you look in the creation. And so even these inanimate objects, mountains and beautiful skies and oceans and flowers and canyons and rivers and lakes. And so all these things reflect God's worthship. They reflect his worthiness, <clears throat> which for starters is a pretty good definition of what worship is. We worship when we attribute value or honor to someone or something. And here's the other interesting thing. We as creatures... Uh, we cannot help but worship. All of us worship. Every creature, whether they know God or not, every human being, whether they know God or not, they are worshiping creatures. We just find things that we highly value and we tend to do things, honor them, respect them, worship them. I mean, I don't haven't looked out in the parking lot, but it's very possible that some of you worship something out there and you polish it, you wash it. You, uh, you labor and work hard to keep it clean. You just, you just highly, highly devote yourself to the care, the maintenance, uh, to the presentation of this thing. And uh, in that sense, in, a sense that, in the sense that you put value toward that thing, you, you worship it. Now, the real question, of course, is how much do you worship it? And we'll talk about that issue in just a moment. Uh, this whole idea of worship being... Uh, given to something it's giving value it's giving honor to someone or to something and uh, that really is the essence of worship consider adam and eve for a moment they were created to have perfect relationship perfect fellowship with god and they are made in fact in god's image they reflect god's glory in ways different and deeper than anything else in all of creation and they reflect God's majesty. They reflect his glory. They reflect his goodness just by obeying him, just by listening to him, just by talking with him, just by doing life with him, living their lives underneath his love and his instruction. Uh, that, in a sense, was their worship. It was the way they, they gave back praise and glory to God. It's the way they said, God, you are our maker. You are the one who loves us. You are the one who made us in such a way that we relate to you differently than all the other creatures. God, you are the one that we wish to honor with our lives. That was the relationship that they had with God in the garden. What happened the moment they quit worshiping God? They quit honoring him. They 
they disobeyed God, and the result was catastrophic. Theologians refer to it as the fall. It's the great fall into sin. Creation was uh, dramatically impacted by the fall into sin, just as human beings have, both then and now, right up to the present, been dramatically affected by this fall into sin. The fall into sin was really, if you understand it correctly, it was a battle of worship. Who will be given ultimate honor? Who will be given ultimate value? Who will be given ultimate worth? Adam and Eve decided it would not be God. It would be them. That's what they decided. You remember how this happened? Satan comes and, and he says to them, did God really say to you? You know, it's so interesting. He casts doubt about what God had told them. And then he says this. He says, God knows that when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will, three key words, be like God. Knowing good and evil. In other words, Satan was saying, you will have equal worth-ship. And Adam and Eve heard that and must have thought about it at least uh, for some bit of time and, and thought that would be worth having, to have the same worth-ship that God has. So let's go for this. Let's do this. And consider, too, the context of the first recorded homicide in human history. What was the context of that debacle? Remember, that this, of course, is who killing who? Cain killing Abel, his brother Abel. And uh, Cain and Abel were actually worshiping God, and whereas Abel brought God an acceptable worship offering, meaning that Abel brought to God what was the best of, uh, of, of what he had, the very best. He wasn't giving leftovers. He wasn't giving God something that he had planned to get rid of anyway, right? But apparently that was not the case with Cain. Cain had not done that. Cain, it seems, had treated this whole matter of worshiping God, this matter of honoring God, pretty casually. Pretty casually. Oh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I bring him. It doesn't matter what I give him. It doesn't matter if it's the best. I mean, you know, I've got to give him something, so I'll give him this. In Genesis 4, chapter 5, it says that God rejected, or it actually says, did not look with favor on Cain's sacrifice. And that's what it's talking about. Uh, Cain um, got, gets jealous. This is so interesting. Cain gets jealous of his uh, brother Abel's worship and how God responds to that worship. And Cain decides to eliminate the pain. You know, he didn't like what he saw. It was uh, troubling him. And, and so Cain kills his brother Abel. And the next thing you know, you have two lines or two seeds, if you will, of mankind developing. One line is a worshiping line. It worships God, and that's the line through Seth. And the other line of humanity is a non-worshipping line. They, they choose not to worship God, not to honor God with their best. And that line proceeds through Cain. And if you take that and you jump forward many, many, many years, now to the time of Mount Sinai, God gives the law to Moses. And what's the very first commandment? Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me, God says. And, uh, you know, it's so interesting. A lot of times, again, we, we misunderstand what's being said here. This is not a problem of God being insecure. This is not a problem of God, you know, just constantly needing something from us or from creatures that he creates. This is a God who's so intimately 
knows his creation, knows how they've been put together, how they've been made, knows what will help them to be exactly who they were meant to be, uh, fulfill their purpose, if you will. And a key part of our purpose, the purpose of human beings, is this relationship with God and reflecting back to God some of the glory that he has because we can do similar kinds of things. We can be creative. Um, we, we can think, we can love, we can serve. There's all kinds of things that we can do that look just like God. Not, not to his degree, but, but they reflect back to the glory of God. And so God says, look, uh, I want you worshiping me. It's important that you, you worship me. Not for my sake, but for your sake. So that we're rightly connected. And uh, as if that's not enough, what's the second commandment? I'll read it to you, Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5. God says, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. You know, um, anybody here ever been jealous? When do you get jealous? You get jealous when somebody you love, somebody you greatly regard, highly regard, somebody you, you really care about, um, is showing their affections, their love for, their care for someone else other than you. Maybe promises have been made. Usually in a love context, that happens. Promises get made, and when those promises get broken, that usually engenders jealousy. Now, God, of course, is a God. There's no sin in God. There's no darkness in God. There's no evil in God. This is not a petty jealousy. His, again, is a jealousy when he, he knows what's best for me. He knows what's best for you. And he longs for that relationship that we have to go deeper and become greater. And so there is a jealousy in God when he sees us literally destroying ourselves by giving ourselves to other gods, other things, other people than to himself. That's what's behind this whole idea of jealousy. And so God says, only worship me. You have to understand, you're made to reflect my glory. You're made to be like me. Only worship me. Uh, And then there's a third command. So interesting again in Exodus 20, verse 7. This command is, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who who misuses his name. And again, you could, you could read that. You could misunderstand it. You could misinterpret it. You could think, well, boy, he's kind of petty. I mean, if you even use his name wrong, he's going to get angry with you. You know, it's, it's, the same, it's the same thing we've been talking about. God wants there to be a, a reverential uh, relationship. You know, the, the fact of the matter is we are like God, but we are not. One of the reasons in our worship services we confess our sin is that we have this, this little problem of sin that makes us not like God. God is holy, God is righteous, God is loving, God is pure, God is light. And we are none of those things without God. We are none of those things. And so even opening the way, that's what we were talking about last week, Easter, Easter Sunday, opening the way so that sinful human beings can have life with God is all about Jesus' death on the cross, dying for our sins, but coming back to life to overcome and conquer our enemies, sin and death once and for all. I mean, that's what opens the way for us to have relationship with this holy God. And part of what's behind this command, this third command, you know, uh, reverence my name, uh, don't misuse my name, is just a reminder to us that yes, as we interact with God, he loves us, he made us, he wants uh, deep relationship with us, but at the same time, we are not him. He is different. He is holy. He is great. He's to be revered. And, and we're actually the healthiest when we do exactly that. 
Um, God is saying, watch out how you talk about me. Don't, don't use my name casually or loosely. Don't, don't sing praises using my name in a disinterested or thoughtless manner. How many here just did that? Nobody's going to confess it in church on Sunday, huh? Well, you know, whenever you're singing a song and you sing something about God and you're not really thinking about what you're singing, we become guilty of that. I mean, it happens all the time. But God just says, don't, don't do it because I'm the God. I, I am the one who made you. I am the one who knows you. I am the one who loves you. I am the one who, in your best interest, you should worship. And I am the one who loves you, you see. Uh, We see similar kinds of things. Come to the New Testament. Look at the Lord's Prayer. What's the very first petition in the Lord's Prayer? Uh, Our Father who is in heaven, that's the address, hallowed be your name. So in the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, the disciples to pray, uh, the very first petition is that of hallowing, worshiping. Lifting up the name of God. It's saying, Father, may you be holy. May you be consecrated. May you be sacred. May you be revered among us. In other words, may you be worshipped. That's the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. May you be worshipped. Let's back up for a little bit. What was the significance of the whole sacrificial system? Now, all those sacrifices that were taking place in the Old Testament. Well, it was the good news. It was the gospel. It was a proclamation of the good news. All those prescribed sacrifices, sin offerings, guilt offerings, burnt offerings, thank offerings, consecration, reconciliation, peace offerings. All of these things prefigured the work of Jesus, the life, the teaching, the ministry of Jesus. And these sacrifices taught us the good news, the gospel. And what's interesting is that God was very particular, too, in the Old Covenant, where, where he wanted people to worship, when they would gather, what he wanted them to do in their worship, what kind of sacrifices they would bring, what festivals and ceremonies they would, they would attend and observe, and what things they were not to attend and to observe. Only certain animals, only certain grains, only certain produce were acceptable sacrifices. Only one altar was the acceptable place to offer sacrifice. Only certain incense made a certain way. Only certain oils made a certain way were acceptable to use in worship of God. And all of these things, when properly observed, constituted appropriate worship for someone living under the old covenant. And these things they did, they did, and and as they would do them, they would proclaim to each other, as people would observe and watch and participate, it would proclaim the good news. And the good news, of course, I you know, paraphrase it, was just, hey, God wants us to live with him. He invites us into relationship. God is going to take care of our sin. He will provide a sacrifice for us. God is going to save us. God is going to hear our prayers. God is going to provide all we need. This God loves us. That's the good news. Old Testament worship was meant to teach truth about who God was, about who we are about what God was doing and going to do. And in the rituals of Old Testament worship, God was giving his people an opportunity to connect with him, to know him and love him and understand him and to worship him. You know, something else that's interesting to me, when you read some of the historical books of the Old Testament, First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles, the story of each king and his deeds is told uh, in varying degrees, depending on the king. And the determining factor in the success or failure of any particular king of Israel, the northern kingdom, or king of Judah, the southern kingdom, is whether they worshipped Yahweh alone. It's whether they worshipped him alone or 
also worshipped other gods. And you read it all the time in Kings and Chronicles. First uh, Kings 14.8, the word of God is spoken to Jeroboam. Uh, he was the king uh, to the north, and he, this is what we read. Uh, God says, I tore the kingdom away from the house of David, and I gave it to you. But you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commands and followed me with all his heart, doing only what was right in my eyes. You have done more evil than all who lived before you. You have made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal. You have provoked me to anger and thrust me behind your back. Not a priority. Because of this, I am going to bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. You see, unfortunately, in the history of Israel and also in the history of Judah, uh, this was a frequent pattern in the people of God. People would not worship God alone. Oh, they often worshiped God, but they also worshiped other gods. And frankly, gave priority to other gods. And what God would do is he would send his prophets, and the prophets would come almost like lawyers, prosecutors, prosecuting the covenant, you see. And they would call God's people to repent and would call them back to faithfulness. And if they did not listen, the hand of God would come upon them, and and he would discipline his people just like a parent disciplines a child. Now, when God's people would repent, this usually meant a cleansing of the temple. It meant a restoration of proper worship, a tearing down of idols and things of that nature. And then that king would be blessed, and so would the people as a result of this restored relationship, worship relationship with God. And uh, people would then again be, through the worship that they would offer to God, they were were saying, God, here is my heart. Um, In 1 Kings 15, we read just such a case that I, I just described. It says, in the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel... Asa became king of Judah, and he reigned in Jerusalem 41 years, a very long reign. His grandmother's name was Mekah, daughter of Abishalom. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. He expelled the male shrine prostitutes from the land. Imagine that. In the temple area, there were male shrine prostitutes. That had become a part of the worship of Israel. Oh, yeah, yeah, we worship Yahweh, but we do some other stuff too. I mean, that, that's how divided their hearts had become. And uh, <laughs> so you, you, you see this, this situation where, where their hearts are just so divided. Uh, keep reading. He uh, expelled the male shrine prostitutes from the land and got rid of all the idols his father had made. Understand, there were idols and places to worship idols throughout the city of Jerusalem and even throughout the temple court areas. Uh, He even deposed his grandmother, Makah, from her position as queen mother because she had made a repulsive Asherah pole. Asherah poles were places usually in the high country where you could go also to worship foreign deities. Asa cut the pole down and burned it in the Kidron Valley. And although he did not remove the high places, so there were some things he didn't do, but this next phrase is really neat. Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. And he brought into the temple of the Lord the silver, the gold, and the articles that he and his father had dedicated. And so this pattern is repeated continually in the book of Kings, in the books of Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles. And the underlying question is always the same. It's always the same question. Who are you going to worship? This is the burning question throughout 
the whole of Scripture. Go to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. The whole first chapter is about how God is fed up with their superficial, self-serving worship. Because that's what their worship had become. It had become mostly about doing the things they want to do. And doing it the way they wanted to do it. And giving God priority, but not the priority in their life. Oh, they still worshipped Him, but they didn't worship Him with the best that they had, you see. In fact, God wants to close the temple doors. In Malachi 1.10, we read this. It says, oh... This is God speaking. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. This raises an interesting point. Apparently, you can go through the motions of doing all kinds of religious things, bringing sacrifices, maybe singing praise, praying prayers, all kinds of things that you can do religiously that really don't mean a thing, according to God. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple door so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. So, from Genesis to Malachi, understand, worship. Worship is the priority. It's, it's a central theme of Scripture. <clears throat> so big point. The big point is that worship mattered to God a lot. It always had. It always will. Precisely because worship di- directly reflects the condition of our heart, you see. That's why worship matters. And the New Testament teaches the same thing. You don't get but a few pages into the New Testament and you meet the Magi in Matthew chapter 2. What are the Magi doing? Well, the Magi have made a long journey. It's at great cost. They're making sacrifices to come and to find the fulfillment of prophecies, apparently, that they've become familiar with, that a baby, a child, is going to be born, is going to become king of kings and lord of lords. And they make that journey, and they find this baby, and they bring precious gifts to him. And they worship him. Uh, You don't get very far in the Gospel of Luke before you run into baby, John the Baptist, in the womb, leaping and worshiping uh, baby Jesus. There's Zechariah and Elizabeth worshiping baby Jesus. Luke 1 and Luke 2, uh, shepherds and angels are worshiping baby Jesus. Simeon and Anna, also in Luke 2, worshiping baby Jesus. Fast forward a little bit. Uh, when Jesus undertakes his public ministry, and it's time for him now to, uh, to b- begin that public ministry, the first thing he does is he goes into the wilderness, you recall, in Luke 4. And there is this battle that's raged. For 40 days, apparently. And again, it's the great question, once, once more, all over. Who are you going to worship? And uh, Satan comes up with one of his all-time classics. He tells Jesus, if you worship me, Jesus, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. In other words, Jesus, if you will worship me, I can, I can make this whole thing work a lot faster for you. I can make it a lot easier for you. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. All you have to do is worship me. It's an issue of worship. And what is Jesus' response? It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Tell you something, it just catches my, my attention there. You know, whatever you worship, you will serve. It always works that way. Whatever you worship, you will serve. Wherever you're putting time and energy and effort and resources into, you, you, there's, you know, whatever you worship, 
you will serve. Those go together. Another interesting passage is in Luke 19. It records for us Jesus' triumphal entry uh, into Jerusalem just before his arrest and his trial and, and crucifixion. In Luke 19, we read this. It says, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They didn't like this praise, this worship that was being attributed to Jesus. And Jesus says back to them, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. If they don't render praise and worship for what's happening right here, right now, the stones are going to cry out. It tells me a couple things. One is, God doesn't need our worship. He invites it. But He doesn't need our worship. I mean, if we don't offer worship, uh, the, the, the stones are going to cry out. And in this case, what Jesus is simply saying is He's saying, this moment, what's happening right now, it demands worship. The Son of God is going to the cross. And if these people don't give what the situation and the circumstances demand, well, then the stones are going to give it. That's how cosmically significant this moment was in all of human history, and in particular, obviously, in the life of Jesus. When you think about it, Jesus' whole earthly ministry was really just a series of battles and discussions and confrontations about who to worship. That's what it was about. And there were lots of people that decided they weren't going to worship Jesus. Pharisees, scribes, teachers of the law. But Jesus, like a knife's edge, was always dividing people into one of two camps. Either you were a worshiper or you weren't, you see. In fact, I... I think it's pretty fair to say that a synonym for being a believer, for being somebody who follows Jesus, would be that you are a worshiper. Or at least it should be. A person who really follows Jesus isn't necessarily someone who goes to church or gets baptized or has been confirmed or sings in the worship ministry. I mean, those things don't automatically make someone a worshiper. A true believer or follower is really, more than anything else, a worshiper, someone who simply cannot stop worshiping. You see, redeemed people worship. Again, you, you really can't stop them from worshiping. No one's ever been able to stop redeemed people from worshiping. Angry Pharisees, scribes, and teachers of the law, and the Sadducees, they couldn't stop Christians from worshiping. Read Acts chapter 5. Roman emperors, they couldn't stop Christians from worshiping. Communist dictators, they couldn't stop Christians from worshiping, true Christ followers. ISIS terrorists, they can't stop Christians from worshiping. The truth is, no one can. No one. Because redeemed people, rescued people, are worshiping people. Part of being redeemed is understanding that you were made to worship this one true, great, loving, living God. Redeemed people just have to worship. It's the only response that seems normal. And so redeemed people, they gather and they praise and they pray and they give thanks and they, they give of their resources and they rehearse God's great redeeming love and they express their love and their gratitude to God. 
And they make this a very high priority in their, in their life. Daily, private worship. Weekly, public worship. I love the way Paul defines true worshipers in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. He gives us a description of a worshiper. It's kind of odd at first. He, he writes this. He says, we are the circumcision. Circumcision is an awkward term for us a little bit these days. But remember, it was, it was the sign in the Old Testament of being set apart, being made a member of, the, of God's family, of the covenant community, being an inheritor of all the covenant promises that God makes to his people. And so if a male was circumcised, it meant that he and his family were chosen by God. They were special. They were set apart for a special purpose. They were supposed to be a blessing to all of the nations. And they were set apart for the glory of God, to glorify God here on earth, so that they would be like a light set upon a hill. And Paul goes on and he says, We who worship by the Spirit of God, uh, <clears throat> such an interesting phrase, the Spirit has done something, you see, to the heart of a true worshiper. Something has happened in us. Something has changed us. This was talked about even in the Old Testament. In fact, there were prophets in the Old Testament that looked forward to a day when this change would take place because there are so many times in the history of God's people in the, under the Old Covenant when they just seemed to have a hardness of heart towards God, towards worship, towards making God a priority in their life. The prophet Ezekiel wrote about it this way. He said, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. And I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And I will remove from your heart, remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, a, a heart that beats and is alive and in love with our God. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. <coughs> Paul's point is that when Jesus came, when Jesus poured out his spirit, that's what makes us real worshipers. It's God at work in us, causing us, moving us in the direction of, of greater depth in our connectedness and therefore greater gratitude and therefore greater worship. So you see, now our worship is guided by the spirit. Now our worship is sustained by the spirit. It's prompted by the spirit, which interestingly enough means that it's not focused on the spirit. It's focused on Jesus. I've referred to this book before, a little book by <clears throat> Dale Bruner called The Holy Spirit, Shy Member of the Trinity. And uh, I won't quote it this morning, but it's a good book. It, it, one of those main points is just that the, uh, the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit is always to shine a light on or focus our attention on Jesus. Not himself, on Jesus. Because of who Jesus is, because of how Jesus lived, because of what Jesus did Jesus shows us with the greatest possible clarity who God is and what God is like. Paul says a real worshiper glories in Jesus Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. When we hear the name of Jesus, when we contemplate what he's done for us personally, collectively, when we survey the cross, when we stop and consider the grace that abides in Jesus, we worship in the Spirit. We glory in Christ Jesus. And consequently, Paul says, we put no confidence in the flesh. We only put confidence in Jesus and we worship Him. Now, you know, at this point in our study, we've kind of looked backwards. 
And uh, in eternity past, and we see that there are angelic beings worshiping God, probably for so so long we, we can't even imagine. And then we looked at creation, and we see an immediate reflection of God's glory in the creation. Everything in creation is constantly, whether you hear it, whether you see it or not, is shouting out glory to God. And we see the theme of worship throughout uh, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. But the question now is, well, what about the future? What's the future going to look like? In Revelation chapter 4, we get a taste of this. It says, each of the four living creatures had six wings. So these are six wingers. Like I said, maybe there's ten wingers, uh, nine wingers, eight wingers. We don't know. Um, But these are six wingers. They're pretty darn impressive. Uh, Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with with eyes all around them, meaning nothing gets by these creatures. They see it all. They're they're almost like God in that they know it all. They, They see everything. Day and night, they never stop saying. And again, this isn't something God makes them do. This is something that you can't stop them from doing, you see. And they say, holy, holy, holy. The Father is holy, the Son is holy, the Spirit is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then there's a response to that. Uh, It says, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne. You want some secret knowledge? Do you know who the 24 elders are? They're us. They're the church. It's not really secret knowledge. Um, the, the 24 elders represent the church. This is the church now. They, we're, we're looking at these six wingers and what they're doing. And we're, we're just caught up with how they love God and how they worship God. And then we reflect on what God has done for us. And what do we, the church, do? What is our response? Well, we worship as well. We fall down before him who sits on the throne, and we worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns. These are the things that we'll receive for what is done. We we take our crowns, and we lay them before the throne. And look at what we say. You are worthy. Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being and the point is friends the point is that worship is what will be happening in the future in heaven now let me just uh, dispel some theories and that is some people think of of heaven as just going to be one giant constant worship service and we think of worship services where you sit in little chairs and you, you, know, you look at the back of the head of the person in front of you and you doodle some and, you, and then we, we will sing a little and we will pray a little and we'll do this. That's not, that is not what the, is going to really characterize worship in heaven. Worship in heaven, again, is going to be something you just can't stop us from doing. It's going to be so engaging. It's going to be so satisfying. Now, it's also going to be something that we will do as we explore the, the great cosmos. We will be worshiping. As we interact with each other, as we use creative abilities that we've got in heaven, we will be worshiping God. But there will be times, and this is what's being pictured here, there will be times when all of the creatures that God has made, human beings, angels, you name them, past, present, and future, will all gather. It'll be the biggest worship gathering that's ever, 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 ever happened. And I'm telling you, we will, we will worship. It will be magnificent. It will be so, so satisfying. So, soul Satisfying. Did you get that? It's going to be like nothing we've ever experienced. We'll be saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
We're going to watch six wingers, maybe some ten wingers and two wingers, whatever. And we're all going to be just just singing his praise. And it's, it's going to do something to our soul that's hard for us to even imagine at this point. But it will be marvelous. The main point is this. Even a cursory survey of Scripture has to bring you to the realization that your worship matters. Our worship matters. The church's worship matters. That's why when we gather in this room together, um, you know, we're cognizant of the fact that there are Christians across the street worshiping. There are Christians across the globe worshiping. There are millions and millions and millions of people offering up worship to God, and ours joins with that and creates a great chorus in heaven. You see, in eternity past, at creation, all through the Old Testament, all through the New, all the way into eternity as far as we can see, the issue really is that of worship. That's what I'd like you to see. And I've got to tell you, you know, when I think about this, I, I, and I reflect on myself and what my worship looks like, I realize my worship is very often not what it should be. We had a gathering here last week. What was last week? Oh, yeah, Easter. And, um, and it occurred to me as I began to prepare and plan and work on this series, um, my, my heart was not where it needed to be last Easter. You'd think Easter he could get it right. You would think. You would hope, right? But I was thinking about stuff going on and did this happen and was this going to happen and you know are the right things in place and I was quite distracted quite distracted oh you go back to that idea where you can do religious things and and yet not be really worshiping I I I I just became very convicted I'm not proud of this I'm a little ashamed of it to have to admit that you know my worship needs to improve you know, when we start a worship service, we start it with something called a call to worship usually. And it's where we together call each other into the presence of God. Do you know where most of us are when we call each other into the presence of God? We're in the parking lot or we're in the lobby drinking coffee or, you know, it takes a while to get here. And I'm guilty of that. I'm not, I'm not pointing my finger at you. I'm, how many times does our, our worship begin and I'm out there having a conversation with somebody? I, I just find myself very convicted about my own approach to worship and, and my place in worship. And I've got a lot to learn about worship. Um, I realize, too, I probably prepare... Uh, in some way, I mean, I, I prepare messages for worship, uh, so I get more stars than you do. Um, <laughs> but preparing my heart is what really matters, I think, to God, not the message. And it occurs to me I could do a better job of preparing my heart for worship. Maybe you can relate to that. Uh, I would just say my public worship needs to improve. I, I need to understand better what's happening here in the public worship, and and I, I need to be a part of that. And uh, you know how thinking about how I can better connect and better glorify God through what I sing or say or do. You know I don't care how lousy. We'll talk more about this later, but uh, not not later as in later today, but later as in uh, later in, in weeks to come. 
<coughs> you know, if you have a really lousy voice, it still honors God even if you will just repeat the words. Maybe you're honoring the person next to you by not trying to sing them. That's okay. But, you know, if you would just utter the words and be thoughtful about them, that's really God-honoring. It's, it's, it's engaging. It's being a participant in the dialogue that happens in worship. And we'll talk more about that. But in the weeks to come, what I want to do together is I want to study worship. And I hope that I can, and many of you will also, become better worshipers. And my point this morning is simply uh, to be as simple as I can. It's to ask you that question. Do you want to become a better worshiper? You know, better than where we are today. There's all kinds of questions around worship. We'll answer, try to answer many, many of them. But the really big question at the outset of this series is, do you want to become a better worshiper? And I would say, if you do, then, you know, let's, let's try to work on getting in here so, so that when the worship starts, we, we call each other to worship and we enter into the prayers together and we, we sing or at least say the words. And actually, we, we do that reflectively. We, we think about what we're singing and what we're saying. And uh, I think it would so delight God if, if we just took very seriously this, this idea that, you know, I can improve as a worshiper. I can give him greater glory and greater honor. I, I, wanna, I don't want to do the worship thing casually, you see. Are you with me in this? Okay. Let's pray. Father, help us. Uh, we confess, God, many things distract us from your worship. There, there are, truth be told, Lord, there are things in our lives that we value so greatly. We give uh, an abundance of our time and our talent and our treasure to them, maybe more than we should. Uh, maybe they even get in the way of our worship of you. We, we just admit that uh, we're not a lot different than the Israelites of long ago, uh, who found themselves, oh yeah, they worshipped you, but they had other things they worshipped too, other gods. God, may your spirit work in us in such a way that we repent of our other gods. And that, Lord, only by the power and the grace of your spirit can this change in us, and where we become better worshippers. And where, Father, it could be said of us, you know, the people there, you just can't stop them from worshiping. Nothing is going to stop them from worshiping. May that be true of us. For we ask this in Jesus' name. For his sake, for his glory. Amen. Well, I want to dismiss us with uh, these words from Psalm 72. The psalmist uh, gets kind of caught up again. It seems like it's probably hard to stop the psalmist from praising. And he says, praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen. 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 Blessings.